Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Bible in a Year reading plan. We also have PDFs available on our website, Church. And as you're reading along, we'd love for you to give us the questions that come to your mind. Uh, the way you can do that is twofold. One, you can send us an email at info at grove.church. The email is to info at grove.church. Sorry. Uh, the address there is info at grove.church. Just say the third time. Uh, or you can send us a direct message on our Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can send us a DM there. Uh, make sure you just put in the subject line of either of those messages that you have a Let's Read the Bible podcast question uh, or a question for Evan and Aaron or Aaron and Evan because my name uh, alphabetically is first, but that's yeah. neither here nor there. Tim calls us distinguished gentlemen sometimes, yes. which that always makes me feel that's nice. That's fine. Uh, so but, today, <laughs> yeah, send us those questions. <laughs> today we are talking about, we're beginning our first in a three-week study on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Which I don't think we've ever done this before. No, we're... we're we've worked of... through the minor prophets. Like, I mean, yeah. that kind of, could kind of be called a series, but this one, like, we were intentionally breaking it down in three parts because it's it's a significant way to do this. We're kind of cranking out, I think, after we finish this, the only books of the Old Testament we haven't done are Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Psalms and Proverbs. I think we've done everything else. It's funny because we've talked about Psalms, but Psalms is such a mammoth of a book. That'll right. probably be like a two, three, four parter. Yeah, do um, each of the Just because like, the way books. Each of the books. Is it four or five? Of I think. Anyways. Yeah. But so anyways, yeah. So we're just we're just going to kind of crank through the, the books that we have and go from there. Yeah. We'll we're going to talk about a little bit of uh, post-exilic history, mm -hmm. if you will. A little bit of the Jews returning it's to Israel. A fancy way to say it. It's a good time. Yeah. Post-exilic, it means like, you know. The, yeah. After they, the exile. Yep. They come back. It's a good spoilers. And yeah. like, oh, it's a good deal. Just kidding. As far as resources we're using today, we have the ESV study Bible, the Logos Bible software, Reformation study Bible, the essence of the Old Testament, a survey by Ed Henson and Gary Yates, and uh, the Bible Project, which is, if you haven't, they're on YouTube. Yeah, if you haven't ever really checked them stuff. out. Yeah, great. They do really in-depth content, but they also do kind of, it's essentially a video version of a survey book. Yeah. And they have every book in the Bible. Sometimes they'll group them together. Like this one, they grouped Ezra and Nehemiah together. Um, but yeah, really good overview. Yeah. I would encourage you, um, especially if you don't have a study Bible, it would be really helpful to like- It's a great resource. Be yeah, before you read a book of the Bible, watch one of their videos. Yeah. So. The other thing too, they have they have you version of reading plans. Uh, we actually looked at one before this reading plan oh, really? about doing one potentially. Uh, but because we do the podcast, we thought it would be a little redundant to do that. But- Another great resource is even with a version Bible plan, uh, you can find one from the Bible Project and they have intro videos for the books. But well, there, well there you go. All right. So we'll introduce the book uh, or I guess books, but we'll see why we're kind of dancing yeah, around that yeah, a little yeah. bit. So the book of Ezra and Nehemiah were actually considered one book. It's mm -hmm. fairly recently that they were split up. And most ancient tradition holds that Ezra himself uh, at least compiled the books because there's parts of Nehemiah that are also in first person. There's mm -hmm. parts of both books are in first person. Uh, so the idea is that Ezra is kind of gathering papers, um, probably with Zerubbabel, he's interviewing people or at least gathering the records of what happened there and then putting it all together. And there's also, I think it's in second Maccabees that there's Ooh. reference to Ezra uh, having access to the library of Nehemiah as well. So again, not not a biblical source, but I would consider the Maccabees like it's a pretty reliable ancient yeah, source historical well. source. So would, extra biblical is what it would be. Right. I'd put it in line, I guess, with like the Josephus stuff. Yep, I agree. So there you go. Uh, also- Which means it's trustworthy and we, we can rely on the integrity of it. Yeah. Uh, not the word of God, but trustworthy. And then- 
It's also widely thought, maybe not as widely thought, but that Ezra was also the writer of Chronicles. So that one's a little hmm. bit more up in the air. Um, some people I don't know agree. if I've ever heard that. Some people agree, some people, people disagree. I don't know how I feel about it, but it's kind of a fun idea. Yeah. The reason for that is because the book of Ezra picks up pretty much right after uh, Chronicles ends. So there you go. All right. Well, it's the first of two historical books that deal with Jerusalem after the Israelites return from, Ez- mm-hmm. from exile. So that's Ezra and Nehemiah. Esther also deals with the Jews in the post-exilic period, except with her, it's not with her, with that book, it's dealing with the Jews in Persia still. Yeah. It's not talking about Jerusalem. They haven't come back yet. Right. So there you go. Uh, and then let's see here. The book of Ezra deals with the first two leaders of the great returns, I guess we'll call them. Ooh, the great returns. The great returns. So there's Zerubbabel, who we'll be talking about today. We're kind of talking about his story. Ezra's story, which we'll be talking about next week, and then the week after that, we'll be talking about Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries of each other. Zerubbabel's stuff takes place. Mm-hmm. Is it? I'm gonna butcher it if I if I say it. It's it's years before though. Yes. So yes. I, I don't remember exactly how many. Uh, and then one fun fact. This is just a fun fact. Uh, but about a quarter of the book of Ezra is written in Aramaic, so it's personal Ooh. papers and stuff like that instead of Hebrew. So there you go. Uh, Didn't know that either. Daniel is the only other book in the Bible to have uh, dual languages. So I think it's chapters two through seven of Daniel are in Aramaic as They're the only bilingual Bible books. There you go. (laughs) So anyway, fun fact. When people say the Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek, and then they sometimes will say, and some Aramaic, this is what they're referencing. So there you go. All right. So let's talk about Zerubbabel. First guy, cool guy. Fun let's, name. Let's begin. Yeah, fun name to say. There's two. There's three Bs in that name. I'll let you figure out where they go because I always have to right-click on the red squiggly line and fix <laughs> it. Awesome. All right, so the book begins with Cyrus, the king of Persia, decreeing that the Jews can return to their homeland. So here, we'll just read that for you. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that, w- that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it into write- writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. In case you forget who Cyrus was, we're, he's introduced to us as Cyrus, king of Persia three times. Mm-hmm. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. A little bit of pride there, because let's be honest, Cyrus, you don't have all the kingdoms. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with them, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, And he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, uh, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses in Judah and Benjamin, and the priests of the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So there's kind of this decree. Cyrus is saying, look, my kingdom's going great. I'm kind of on top of the world right now. Um, and he he pretty much is. He dies on top of the world. It's yeah. a few of his descendants who are going to have some problem with those pesky Greeks to the West. But for now, Persia's top dog. And he's like, look, we're going to lo- relax a little bit. Israelites, you can go back home, rebuild your temple, worship your God. And kind of as an aside, it is it is interesting. This is just purely historical. This isn't really a biblical thing. But it is interesting how many of the great empires of history a big part of why the longer lasting ones last long is because they kind of let people do their own thing. So uh, like with, even with, um, 
even with Rome, there's uh, religious oppression, but not nearly to the level of like the Greeks. And you mm -hmm. even saw it where like the Greeks are like, hey, listen, you can't really be Jews anymore. And then the Maccabees were like, heck with that. Whereas the Romans were a little bit more lax with it. So it's just kind of one of those interesting historical tidbits there. So he allows the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. Yeah. And it says that people's hearts are moved and stirred. Quite a few people because the second chapter of Ezra <laughs> is, is one of the most exciting chapters that you'll ever read. Yeah, so we're gonna read it for you right now. No, yeah. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. If you uh, if you haven't gotten to it yet, the second chapter of Ezra is essentially a list of everyone who goes. Um, and it is important because, and most of the genealogies that we get in the Bible are actually really important. They're just kind of, you know, they can be a slog to read through. But the big thing is telling you is A, this really isn't myth. It's not so, and mm -hmm. most of the post-exilic books, people don't really argue that they're mythological or made up, but um, no one who's writing myth is taking the time to write out the exact names and families and clans of all the people who are coming back. Uh, but the second thing, and this is the more important thing that's talking about, is it shows that the line of the Messiah is not broken. So we know that the Messiah is going to come from the house of David. We know that Jesus is uh, Joseph, his father, is from the tribe of Judah, uh, and he is in that line of David. So it gives Jesus a claim to be the Messiah there. And then the second chapter of Ezra is kind of showing us that the messianic line remains intact. So there you go. And then in the first chapter, you also get a long list of details of what they're bringing. So there you go. If you if you like details, if you read <laughs> the Pentateuch and you were like, I need more of the details of what everything was like you're in luck because Ezra is going to record that for you. Uh, and then there's a wonderful moment of triumphal hope, I'll call it, when they first arrive back. And this is in chapter three. So this is right after all of the genealogy stuff. It says, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose uh, Jeshua, the son of Jezodak. I should have looked up how to pronounce that one. I'm going to go with Jezodak. Jezodak? Yeah. That, that seems right. With his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kin kinsmen. And they built an altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. So you kind of get this picture of... It's funny, it, it, it reminds me of Noah, where after the flood subsides, hmm. you can kind of imagine, and maybe I'm just kind of, maybe I'm just kind of projecting this, but you can kind of imagine everything being in ruins. Like when there's a flood, um, mm -hmm. particularly in like cities and stuff, it just looks devastated afterwards, yeah. especially one to the magnitude of the, the Noah flood would have been. And they build an altar and they worship God at the altar. And here we can kind of imagine, you know, Jerusalem... And it's not like post-apocalyptic post -apocalyptic in that like no one was there, but it is like, you know, it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of had this picture in my head of not quite ruins, but just a city that is clearly in decline, yeah. a city that clearly isn't what it used to be. And then one of the first things they do is they build an altar and they begin sacrificing to God. Yeah, And you can think about how God was not able to be worshiped the way that he commanded the Israelites to worship him. Yeah. Now that's, well, I was going to say it's God's fault, but it's not God's fault, but what I, I guess what I mean, it's the Israelites' fault for what they did, but yeah. I'm saying God allowed that to happen, I guess yeah, is my yeah. point. He allows that the 
the temple to be destroyed and the people to be exiled. But this is a beautiful moment of kind of beginning to recapture that. Yeah. So. Well, I think it's, I think it's significant too, because I mean, think about it for a second. We, we've read all the time, even in, I mean, first Samuel, something I've referenced even recently was just this idea of obedience is better than sacrifice. God was more concerned with his people's heart and obedience to him than he was about the sacrifices. And he was so concerned, he was willing to go without quote unquote worship for the the consequences of his people's rebellion. Mm-hmm. Like he was willing to to allow them to go through a season where in essence, he just allowed it to become something that turned their hearts back. Like when they were finally, they realized like, man, God, <laughs> we had a good with you. Or like, it's just not being able to be a part of their city and their people. And like, they've lost their identity. They're now part right. of this this foreign nation. And, and God uses those seasons in our lives, whether they're long or short, to remind us of whose we are. And then in turn, evokes worship from that. And so God was willing to forsake worship from his people for the sole purpose of their identity to be reestablished in him. Um, he wants their hearts to be obedient. And so I think it is a significant moment in which I would agree with you, the hope that exists in this moment. They, they started off with this recognition of God, you alone are worthy to be praised. You alone are worthy to be worshiped. And we're going to build the altar before we do anything else. And we're going to sacrifice on the altar in a form of worship because it's what you asked for um, in, in the law and things like that. But it's this, it's this incredible moment of, God, we get it. And, and I mean, there's been moments in my life that I can remember um, that I've drifted or I've lost sight of who God is and who I am. And when he's allowed seasons to draw me back to him, like the worship in that moment is is more deep, more profound, more intimate mm-hmm. um, than, than, it, than I could remember it being prior. And so I just think it is a very significant moment. It is one that's very hopeful. It is one that's very alluring. I mean, go back. I mean, not to keep talking about this, sorry. Um, but when we got back to in person, from having shut down to drive-in here right. at the Grove Church, we did drive-in for a long time. But when we got to go back in person, that first time gathered together in a building singing, even if it was with masks on, like singing was significant. Um, and so I remember like, for me, I was very moved. I'm like, God, you're so faithful to us. So anyways, all that to say, it is a very significant moment in this in this time of history. Well, it's funny that you bring up COVID because I think for me, when you said, that feeling of, and you kind of like, before you had finished your thought, my, my feeling like that was when, um, we did on, we did online only mm-hmm. for quite, for probably six weeks or so, maybe it was eight. Yeah. I don't remember. Um, but anyway, a, a decent chunk of time where we were mostly at home. Um, I didn't really see friends and this is the very beginning of the pandemic. So we, like we played call of duty is how like I connected <laughs> with friends. Um, but like the only person I saw like on staff uh, was Pastor Nick, the lead pastor. And that was because I, I would go to his house and I'd pick up the cards because he'd record messages and I'd bring them back to my place and I'd edit them and get them posted and stuff like that. So the first week that we went back to doing drive-in and even just seeing the oh, staff yeah. and like like being back in the church building, like it just felt, um, yeah, it was just an incredible. And then like you said, going from, because um, I, I spoke one time during drive-in and it's like, but you're speaking to windshields. It's yes. the craziest thing. And then actually going back to like seeing people's faces and stuff like that. It's yeah. just, yeah. It it's was progressive cool glimpses. Because I agree. I remember even sitting at driving like, it's so good to be with people. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> they're in the cars and I'm waving at them yeah. and parking them. Uh, but to, to see and to hear the honks during a message, things like that. Anyways, it's just, it is a significant moment in history for God's people in this moment. Um, and we can kind of have moments like that too, if we stop and just reflect on, 
our journeys with Christ and, and yeah. even recently in the last 18 months. So. Well, and the other big shift we see in the history of Israel here is that they spent, I mean, man, basically from Abraham <laughs> to the exile, um, maybe that's a little, maybe Moses to the exile, but they spent so much of their history wanting to be like other nations. And then in these books, so true. in these books we see we're done with that, yeah. almost to a fault. And we'll talk about that here in a second. Yeah. But, um, and we've talked about this before too, that the the idea of the Israelites struggling with worshiping other gods, that's pretty much gone now. They, we don't hear too much about uh, idol problems in the post-exilic period, but we also get this this real sense that God kind of gave them what they wanted. And if the Jews yeah. wanted to, and many of them did, they could just fade into the empires, fade into Babylon, fade into Persia, eventually fade into Greece and Rome and never maintain their actual identity of, of worshiping Yahweh. But so many of them, I think it's kind of that be careful what you wish for moment yes. where that just kind of kickstarted their hearts. And like, you know, it says it stirs their heart and they want to go back and like, okay, let's rebuild the temple and let's do this the way God yeah. would have commanded it. So the, drif the drifting is normal. The drifting is natural. I have, I have a, uh, we talked about this, I think a while ago, but the, the uh, come that fount but there's a sign on my wall in my house that bind my wandering heart to thee mm -hmm. um, because it's so significant and true. Like the drifting is, is, an, is part of the, the repercussions of sin. Yep. So this is, this is what makes this moment so significant in, in this part of history. Yep. So getting, getting back to this, the stories of Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah all have these really interesting parallels. So they all start with a king of Persia being cool, basically. So <laughs> yeah, right. like, they're just like, hey, like Cyrus is like, hey, you know what? Okay, you can go. Head on back. And then we'll talk about what happens with Ezra and what happens with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is kind of like the coolest one. He, yeah. that, I forgot, is it, is it Artaxerxes? I think it's Artaxerxes. Yes. Um, who, he gives him an armed escort back. He's like, hey man, you're, you're my, you're my guy. Yeah. Get back there. Do your, build your wall. Yeah. A lot of favor. A lot of favor. So, but anyways, we're talking about Zerubbabel right now. So it starts off with the king of Persia declaring, and then they always begin a work, right? So in uh, with Zerubbabel, it's the rebuilding of the temple, and there's always an opposition to it, famously with Nehemiah, but all three of them have this opposition. And so, especially after Zerubbabel refuses to allow um, the surrounding people to help, and this is one interesting fact that the Bible Project brought up, because in hearing this story, it's always taught as essentially just the foreign nations wanting to come in. And Zerubbabel's like, no, this is specifically for us. But it was brought up that actually a lot of these people were probably Jews hmm. who had stayed. And it was really kind of this remnant who was going back to Jerusalem. And it was, so it was, it was, it was this kind of a weird rejection. Yeah. And then it was also brought up in the prophetic parallels. And we just worked our way through the minor prophets. So we see all of this, but so many of the prophecies are looking forward to the eventual fulfillment of, and I think it's going. I think it's actually talking new heaven, new earth here. Mm -hmm. But this idea of Jerusalem being a city without walls, where all tribes, all nations come together and they worship Yahweh. Well, you actually see the exilic fulfillment of that. I suppose is a it's a Jerusalem with walls, and only the Jews are allowed. And so it's it's kind of an, it's it's an interesting contrast. Yeah, that's true. But. Uh, there's a season where they eventually are stopped for a little bit, and this is where we get into uh, Haggai, and he, that kind. Of, we, if you remember that prophetic book, he's kind of telling them, "Hey, get back started on this thing that is happening during all this time." They do get started on it, they finish it, and then at the end of the book, we get this section here, and it says, "Then according to the to the word sent by Darius the king, 
Oh, I should have looked this one up. Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether, Bozanai, and their associates did with diligence what Darius had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Ido. Sorry, I left Zechariah out. I always do that. So there was, two, there, there was two of them prophesying at the same time. Sorry, Zechariah. Not to be confused with Zephaniah, who was earlier. Uh, they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Took a long time. Yeah. But they but they get it done. And you can kind of imagine just the really the beauty of the moment there. Mm-hmm. And it, it's 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 funny because it's hard to really put it into words of what that would be. It's like for us as a as a church right now, we're working on expanding our building and we want to build a larger auditorium to be able essentially to fit more people and to continue to just spread the gospel as far as we can go Mm -hmm. so it's an it's imagining what that feeling will be like of when it's finally opened and all these years of work are done um but it's deeper than that right like i think of cathedrals in the medieval times where the architect who would create it who would create the plans his grandson or great grandson would probably be the one who would actually see it completed. So every almost every architect who started a cathedral knew he was going to die before mm-hmm. it was finished. And so just That's that crazy. that feeling of like I can't even imagine like the um yeah, like my great grandpa. I only know two of their names. I feel kind of bad now. But my great grandpa, <laughs> like f- f- my great grandpa Faris or my great grandpa Edward, right? Like imagining like me in my fifties fulfilling their fulfilling their dream for them. Yeah. That's just a crazy thing. And that's kind of what you're getting here is not quite that length of time, but really this idea that it's been going on and going on and now the temple is rebuilt and you're kind of fulfilling the hopes of in this case it is their ancestors. I don't know if it'd be grandfathers, great grandfathers, but the ones who saw Solomon's temple destroyed. Yeah. And now their descendants get to fulfill that hope of rebuilding again. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful moment. Yeah. And I think sometimes um, certain books of the Bible are just really straightforward, and that's just the way that's just the way they're written. Um, so you, we don't take the time to kind of pause and think through the actual, and yeah, just imagine the emotions yeah, that would be really going, going through their heads. Yeah. So there you go. And then the story of Zerubbabel ends in Ezra chapter six, starting at verse nineteen. It says, "On the fourteenth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover." Uh, as a reminder, the Passover is the Jewish celebration that celebrates when they were still in slavery in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And, Ten plagues of Egypt. Yep, the final plague, the spirit of, uh, the angel of death passed over the houses of the Jews. So, and it's like, I mean, that one in Yom Kippur, like the two holiest days in Judaism. So, there you go. Uh, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So, they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, and the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So I think it's just a cool moment. So it's just, it, there's a lot of moments in the story of Zerubbabel and that first group of people coming back. I love the picture of 
just building an altar and offering sacrifices, even in the midst of desolation. I love the picture of the temple being completed and just the joy that you would feel. And then the picture of celebrating, I don't want to say one of the first because God had been showing just miracles and grace to the people. But the first one in a long time, you think of Passover and what that mm -hmm. means. And it's this idea of being set free from the bondage of Egypt. And now they're being set free from the bondage of other empires of, you know, first Assyria, then Babylon, now Persia. They're being, even though they're still being ruled over, they're being allowed to worship God the yeah. way that he commands to be worshiped. So just a cool moment. Yeah, for sure. Love it. Well, that ends the section on Zerubbabel. You're right. All right. You're good. It's a fun name to say. I hate that name. I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, it's a fine name, I suppose, but I, I it's like <laughs> I Haggai for me. I struggle with it. So Haggai. Hey, hey guy. Hey Haggai. guy. Hey guy. Yeah, you know. All right. Well, that actually wraps it up for this episode of Let's Read the Bible. A bit of a shorter one, but hope you guys still enjoyed it and got a little bit out of it. Uh, as a reminder, please leave us a five-star review. Um, and if you write them out, we'll read them on the website. Not the website. We'll read them on the podcast because that's just that's just the kind of people that we are. Uh, but we are also a resource of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our full archive of past messages, our full archive of past podcasts, uh, as well as our Life and Limb blog. Life and Limb blog. This week, I wrote it. So if you want to, if you want to learn a little bit fancy. about. Uh, a little bit about the North Star and the era that I grew up in and the first time I ever heard about social media, check out, check out Grove.Church. <laughs> does so, the, all those three things go together? That's called a teaser trailer. But anyway, uh, and also if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on the website. Uh, there's a gift button in the top right-hand corner. But with that being said, we'll see you all next week. Have a great day, guys. 